Ready? Ready. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Wing Women podcast, hosted by best mates and journalists, Frankie Graddon, that's me, and Charlie Gowans Eglinton, that's her. Builders. You might be able to hear from the vastly improved sound quality, we're actually in the same room. <laughs> for the first time since March? March, I guess. Well, it's the first time I've seen you in Yonks. I've been in Devon. You've come back to an absolute heatwave. Delighted I'm back. My whole body is wet with sweat. It's disgusting. Yeah, we timed it perfectly to come back. We've had to turn off the electric fans as well to try and protect audio quality. We do have the windows open so we don't die. And we've also got some wooden fans. Some wooden fans. So sexy. Oh, the schooler. So, yeah, sorry if you can hear the odd motorbike or banging from outside but if we close the windows we might die maybe we could learn fan language oh yeah Yeah. this says fuck you (laughs) (laughs) got you a fun drink (gasps) this is very exciting it's too hot for alcohol yeah no one wants to hang over in this heat (gasps) oh yes oh you absolute babe (laughs) <laughs> I'm so happy. So it is a... How do we pronounce that? Chocchio. There's no H. Cocchio? Cocchio. It's a chocolate milk. Chocolate it's a milk. classic chocolate milk. I first drank one of these. It, this is a real holiday drink that you find in, um, in those little corner shops on holiday. So I first drank this in Mallorca last year. Yes. And it just changed my world. It's in a little glass bottle, like a little milk bottle. It's very stylish. Mustard yellow lid. Oh, fantastic sound. Can do mine. We can cheers. Sorry, I just drank straight away. Couldn't wait to get it in my chops. Mm. Oh, and it's ice cold. It's almost like we're at the beach. It is almost like we're in the beach. Oh, thanks, Jazz. That is delicious. You are so you've made You've made my day. You've made my day, she says, as she swipes under eye sweat from her face. Well, under boob sweat is my real issue. Well, I've really come into new levels of under boob sweat because my boobs have grown, as has my stomach. They look cracking. Thank you. Always do, though. Thank you very much. So my boobs and stomach now are just one mass. And my boobs just rest... Pleasantly yeah, the thing on is, my mine do that anyway. <laughs> so that's difficult for you <laughs> because it's a new thing for you, but that's not just for pregnant women. <laughs> <laughs> but like mine rest, even when I'm stretched out horizontally, mine rest. So I have got new levels of under boob sweat. It's fairly disgusting. Sorry to hear it. Never mind. I'm doing a new cotton bra I've seen you're wearing a bra today yeah you can see it through my t-shirt a bit. well no, but tell me about it it's from Rossell oh Fact, nice let me just untuck I'll show you pretty oh, yeah. British brand that is just a few years old and they don't do underwiring so instead you've just got this slightly thicker underband mm-hmm. and then also they do a side angled seam that's supposed to push your boobs together I think quite perky very perky. Like, normal amount of perky, and I'm not wearing underwire. And comfy. Yeah, because it's really lightweight, 100% cotton. It's so very pretty. lovely. So you've made a return into the bra sphere. Sort of. A different kind of bra. Yeah. Well, I'm, as you know, I love not wearing a bra, 
but I've had to start wearing one a little bit more. I'm wearing one from Six Studio. Right. Which is a nursing brand. Really pretty bras for if you're nursing. But I have to say, even if you're not nursing, just lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not nursing right now, and I've been wearing the hell out of it. Because again, no underwire, breathable fabric. Got like a little bit of a lace detail. You're not wearing it now, are you? I'm not wearing it now. I I mean, it's a miracle I'm wearing clothes. So don't show me your boobs right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you won't won't want to see them. (laughs) They have changed since you last saw them, Chaz. (laughs) but that is pregnancy for you anyway what have you been reading this week so i have been reading a very interesting piece on glamour this is the first column from beth mccall who will be doing a monthly column on mental health for glamour and the headline of this one is are you guilty of doom scrolling how the unhealthy new social media trend is eroding your mental health so doom scrolling also sometimes called doom surfing The word surfaced in about 2018, but it's become a real buzzword for 2020 as stats show that the habit has significantly increased during the pandemic. And basically the habit is constantly scrolling through social media, looking for bad news or having found some bad news on social media and then basically going down a rabbit hole to find out more about this bad news and adjoining bad news, which there is just so much of it. Well, you don't have to go far, I was going to say. You really don't. And I think we've all probably increased our screen time. Well, exactly. So Beth speaks about in the piece that she, when the pandemic hit, she basically became glued to Twitter and got into the habit of reading as much as she could about the pandemic because she felt like the more informed she was, the safer she was being. She was being super prepared. Knowledge is power. Exactly. We're all told... Be as prepared as you can, be as aware as you can. But she found that it had a massive detrimental effect on her mental health. So I'm just going to read a little snippet from the feature. I was reading global news as it broke. And then I was reading hundreds of people's reaction to that news. Strangers suffering became my suffering. And I hoovered up panic in hours long scrolling sessions. I felt burned out before lockdown was officially announced, getting preemptively angry at the ways other people weren't taking this seriously, worrying about a national pasta shortage and dreaming I was chasing a single roll of toilet paper that I could never quite catch. I relate to that so strongly. So I've just come back from staying with my parents where my dad did the baby boomer version of doom scrolling. He's not on Instagram, <laughs> he's not on Twitter. But he will hop between news stations. So we'll be watching BBC and they'll do their headlines, which just make the pit of your stomach fall out. Then he'll go on to Sky and watch their headlines. Then he'll go on to another news channel and then he'll just repeat this cycle where he's flicking between all of them. And they're all saying the same thing. And because it was on the TV in the house, wherever you went in the house, you could hear it. And it was just... Absolutely awful. So Beth talks about how it was so detrimental to her mental health, which I agreed with. I found being surrounded by these these walls of headlines incredibly depressing and incredibly anxiety-inducing. I was reading a piece on Healthline. On Doom Scrolling, they interviewed a psychologist called Dr Carla Marie Manley. And she says, many people think they'll feel safer by staying abreast of the latest news yet they don't realise that consumption of negative news only leads to greater fear, anxiety and stress. So it debunks that myth that 
the more you know, the safer you'll feel. But I'm wondering where that line is, because then I also feel very guilty if I disengage with it totally, because I think we do have a duty to know about the world and what's going on, no matter how horrendous it is. Well, and I think during the pandemic and during lockdown, because we weren't going out as much, it was quite easy to miss things if you weren't constantly checking the news and social media. Mm. It would be quite easy for huge world events and movements to pass you by because you're not walking past newspapers with their headlines. You're not walking past giant screens that are playing the news. You're not in a dentist surgery watching the news. You don't find it unless you seek it when we're in this situation. And I think that's a very bizarre split that some of us are just completely engrossed and watching too much perhaps and getting to a point where we can't take it in anymore and you kind of go into this state of extreme stress. Mm. And then other people have maybe disengaged completely and yes, okay, don't experience that stress, but isn't it important to know what's going on in the world and be informed and especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. What is so important for us to do as white women, you and I, is to educate ourselves and to be reading as much as we can and to be finding out where we've gone wrong. And what is the frustrating thing is that if we chose not to, we could just put it out of our minds. Well, because that, is bliss, that is our it? privilege, isn't it? We can just stop thinking about it. And you can't when you're being discriminated against for the colour of your skin, but we can just stop thinking about it. And so you can just switch off the news and choose to disengage. That's not something that you or I would consider doing. But where do you draw the line and protect your mental health? I think this is what is... I mean, I was thinking about this this morning when I put BBC News on. So we're recording this on Wednesday. And the stats of how deep the recession is have been released. And we all knew that a recession was coming. It was inevitable. But to see... I mean, we're we're 20%. Our economy has retracted by 20% since this pandemic kicked off. The numbers are staggering. Our figures are more than double the US, Germany, Spain. We're really in the shit. And not that I didn't know that was coming, but to see it on the news in black and white is so stark. And I just, my whole morning, I I mean, I haven't stopped thinking about it because then you start worrying about, okay, I mean, I've already seen the effects that it's had on my work and my income. But then I start worrying about what about Ben? What about my parents? What about my friends? What about my family? You start snowballing into this just state of hysteria, actually, because it is such a calamitous event. We're going to have so much of that still to come without sounding like a doom-monger, but it's inevitable. So how do we manage that? We know that every time we switch on the news or we go on Twitter or we go on Instagram, okay, Instagram is also peppered with everybody's lovely holidays, which normally pisses me off, but actually (laughs) I'm kind of finding it a bit of a nice break from all the bad news, but it's unavoidable. So how do we move forward staying informed, especially about the things that we should be informed about, as you say, like the Black Lives Matter movement, what's going on in Lebanon, anti-Semitism. It's so important that those issues all get the coverage that they should get and that we're having those conversations about them. 
but you could just watch the news 24 hours a day, couldn't you? And actually, funny that you say your dad hops channels, because my parents watch the American news as well. Oh, God. Why would you choose to watch the American <laughs> news? I mean, maybe it would make you feel better about the British news, perhaps, but they watch hours of that, too. You could just go on forever. It's almost addictive. It is almost addictive. So it is trying to put a lid on it and manage it healthily. And I think it's something we're all going to have to really think about. In the Healthline piece, they talk about putting... There are apps that you can put, more apps, that you can download that will put limits on your Twitter usage and your Instagram usage. In her piece, Beth speaks about going on a social media detox. She deleted Twitter from her phone for a while and Instagram from her phone for a while, which are all options. I have never had the balls to delete an app off my phone, which sounds ridiculous. And maybe I should try deleting Instagram off my phone for a while. But I haven't quite worked up the courage to do that yet. But you'd feel out of the loop, you'd feel cut off. Well, this is the thing, because you don't want to... You still want to feel knowledgeable and relevant, but, yeah, it's just working out those parameters. I just think it's going to be a really interesting balance that we're all going to find ourselves being in because you still need to be in a state where you can progress with life. We can't all stop and just have a meltdown. We can have our moments, but we do need to keep going. And also that's not productive. It's important to watch the news and be stirred to action and stop hammering. What do you need to hammer? It's important that we're watching the news, we're stirred to activity, that we're signing petitions, that we are engaged. But you reach a point where that crosses over into actually feeling paralysed because there's just too much and how can you possibly help? Well, cheery. <laughs> Drink your chocolate milk. Did you know that this was Danish? Didn't know. No. Not surprised, though. The Danes are very stylish. Since 1951. People. This probably changes the pronunciation of that. But um... Oh, yeah, because I was going... Italian. Mm. I don't know what it would be in Danish. Neither do I. Neither do I. If anybody yeah. knows, let us know. What have you been reading this week? I read a piece that actually came out today by Jess Cartner Morley at The Guardian called The New Taboo. The New Taboo. How flattering. Taboo? Taboo. <laughs> taboo. <laughs> taboo? You, get, it's, you say it and you're like, it's that. Taboo. It's a taboo subject. Yeah. Taboo. It's a lot of meaning. Taboo taboo. Also, one of the black eyed peas is called taboo. Imagine. Really? Yeah. Will I am Apple or Apti App or something. I only know Will I am and Fergie. Fergie. Apple or Apti App, can't remember. And taboo. Apple and Apti App are quite different. Sounds like Apple though. <laughs> Did I actually? So then I said Apple and then I was like, but that's Gwyneth Paltrow's daughter. And I feel like she's the only one called Apple. I'm doing a really weird whistly laugh today, like um, Wheezy. That man who can't, yeah, like that. Oh no, I was thinking that man who can't get off the ceiling in Mary Poppins. <laughs> do you know who I mean? Anyway. I do. Anyway, Jess's piece is the new taboo: how flattering became fashion's ultimate f word. So this really interested me because Jess goes on to speak about how much linguistics have changed in the way that we talk about fashion and the way that we talk about our bodies. And you and I have both worked as fashion editors and fashion journalists. We have seen that and we have lived with that, that certain words that you maybe would have used before, you don't now. And when we were starting out, people would talk about clothes that made you look thinner or better or 
perfected you in some way and that has stopped for the most part and rightly so but this word flattering has survived and it's a word I've used it's a word that does incredibly well I know for online traffic when you're working at a different publication if you put flattering in a headline the most flattering dresses the most flattering pairs of trousers the most flattering swimsuits that story will perform incredibly well online. And that's what pays your salaries when you're working somewhere like that, when you're pitching a piece. We still use it because we know for so many women that is appealing and that we are told that we should be looking for clothes that are flattering. Jess writes, but for Generation Z, Z? Z, you're English. I can't, I can't speak today. <laughs> Smutley. <laughs> well, I'm now thinking of another Disney character that's like drinking some kind of moonshine from a jar and whistles like that. It's an old man. They're all old men. But for Generation Z, roughly speaking, those born between 1995 and 2010, flattering is becoming a new F word. To compliment a woman on her flattering dress is passive-aggressive body policing, sneaked into our consciousness in a Trojan horse of sisterly helpfulness. It is a euphemism for fat-shaming, a sniper attack slyly targeting our hidden vulnerabilities. Flattering, in other words, is cancelled. And she's spoken to numerous people, including the British model and body image activist, Charlie Howard, about the language we use. And Howard said, the issue with the word flattering is that we instantly associate it with looking thin and therefore looking better. It suggests your tummy looks flatter or that your waist looks smaller. And again, she agrees that it's a phrase older generations use because when you grow up with something, you maybe don't take a step back and question a word you're using, you just carry on. But it is true that actually, if somebody compliments your dress and says, God, that's so flattering on you, you are made to feel in that compliment that you look good because you look smaller than you usually do. Mm. Yeah, it's very much... Flattering might as well be, oh, that dress makes you look thin. (laughs) And it makes your bum look small and perky and it makes your tits look small and perky. That's why that word just feels so problematic, but it is just so part of everyday jargon. I find myself saying it in real life. I know I've written it. It's something that I didn't think about. Actually, I started to think about it much more when I worked at the pool. So what was that? Four years ago, five years ago when I started to think, do you know what? I don't know whether this feels like it should be a compliment and it should be something that we're always striving for. I felt like that was at the time that Leandra Medine's man repeller message was coming into play and fashion went towards those midi dresses and clunky shoes and they were actively unflattering, purposefully so, but the goal is still, I think, to look thin and well-proportioned, whatever well-proportioned is, in those pieces. And actually, a lot of the time, the people whose style is praised, this 20-something supermodel style icon, and they're wearing cycling shorts and a sweatshirt, is that a groundbreaking, innovative fashion outfit? Or do we just think they look good because they have a model figure? Mm. And actually, if you saw a girl on the street who was my size or a girl on the street who was a size... 18 wearing cycling shorts and a sweatshirt would you think fashion icon and so often in fashion we say oh my god she looks fantastic her outfit's amazing but 
off-duty model style, for example, which is always praised as something that is this effortlessly chic style, is just jeans and a white T-shirt. If I wear jeans and a white T-shirt, people don't think I look incredibly chic. You do. They don't throw stones at me. I mean, I'm fine, but I do look like I haven't made an effort because our culture just values that thinness above all else. And so actually, you can wear what you like when you're thin and be called fashionable. Well, and even something that pretends to be unflattering still is flattering because your body is that perfect ideal that society accepts. So... And maybe your bottom looks like a size two instead of a size zero. Right. So it's not a disaster, is it? But I might have used the word unflattering last week, actually, when I talked about wearing shorts. And I talked about the fact that for me and my relationship with my body, I have just never felt that comfortable wearing shorts, wearing anything above knee length. And normally I'm in full length and normally I'm pretty covered up. Not a lot of skin on show at all. And this summer I've bought a couple of pairs of shorts because it's hot and my body isn't offensive. But yes, I do think about it in terms of, oh, this isn't flattering for me. And what I mean by that in my head when I try something on and I think it's not flattering is it doesn't make me look slimmer. Mm. And yes, when I'm looking at myself, that is what I'm thinking. I should look slimmer. I think that's what so many women think when they put clothes on. You gravitate towards whatever makes you look smaller which is so limiting and for so many people means you aren't wearing the things that you'd necessarily want to wear because you feel like you can't wear that's the thing I hate it when people say I oh I'd love to wear that but I can't wear it because my shoulders are too broad or my legs aren't long enough that's such a sad it's such a shame that people feel like that and I feel like that I'm not We all feel like that. It's incredibly hard to not feel like that. However, I also think that there is nothing wrong with wanting to wear clothes that make the best of yourself, that you feel fantastic in. It's just changing what that word flattering means so that it doesn't just mean looking thin or looking as small as you possibly can. Jess does mention that flattering can just mean you look like your best you in it. But that's not really how we use it, is it? Because for so many of us, our idea of our best us is just a thinner one. It's a smaller self. It would just be so nice, and this is what I was talking about a little bit last week, is how freeing it is and how fun it is when you just start to dress for joy. Mm. And yes, dress for practicality as well. And for me, that means not forcing myself into absolutely sweltering clothes. I've worn black jeans for a day on the beach in Barcelona when I was 22 and it was 40 degrees and I kept my jeans on. Yes, there's that not feeling like you need to cover up when it's hot, but also buying something not because you think, oh, that flatters me and it makes my bum look smaller or it makes my waist look smaller or it makes me look smaller, but buying something because you love it and not thinking, but will that be all right on me? Will I be socially acceptable? Before we move on to our recommendations, I've got one more talking point oh yay Francesca that I want to share with you this is something that was actually tweeted by the account Letters Mitford in July but it's been doing the rounds so I've only just seen it although I do have 
a book of letters from the Mitford sisters. They've written, routinely sent by Nancy to acknowledge correspondence she considered unworthy of any other reply. And it reads, Miss Nancy Mitford is unable to do as you ask. Brilliant. That's it. Imagine putting that on your email auto-reply. Ballsy. It's a power move. Such a power move. Oh, yeah. I'm into it. But I say I'm into it. I struggle to say no to things. Oh, all the time. All the time. Because I feel like no is an unacceptable answer nowadays. I feel we're meant to say yes. We're meant to be can-do attitude. How can I make something happen? You don't want to miss out on opportunities. You don't want to limit yourself. There's a whole book, actually, which I read, which was very good by Shonda Rhimes, called The Year of Yes. And it's about broadening your horizons, expanding your possibilities. Culturally, no is frowned upon, I think. And we are not encouraged to put up boundaries, especially professionally, but actually also personally, whether it's going on a blind date, or visiting a new country. You're meant to be embracive of everything, right? Going to a hen party you don't want to go to. <laughs> we have to paint some pottery or do, like, a spin class. Can you imagine? Awful. Sorry if anyone's had a spin class. Oh. do if you've enjoyed it, good for you. I think they should be told. <laughs> so I think no is something that we're not encouraged to say. However, I think it can be one of the most powerful things you can do. I think especially if you're an inherent people pleaser, like me, and like you. I don't know if I am, but continue. <laughs> I would say you are. I think it's very easy to bend over backwards to accommodate everybody else apart from yourself and put your needs secondary, put yourself in situations that make you unhappy or stressed or overstretched. And I think a very productive thing you can do is to politely say no. I did this for the first time last summer. I'd gone freelance. Freelancing is a tough one because you are made to feel like you need to be grateful for every single opportunity and you do need to be open to a lot of opportunities and that is one of the great things about freelancing because it does make you open to much more. But you are fed the line that there's a limited amount of work, so you're lucky to get this. Exactly. You're lucky to get every commission. Yes. Rather than, I'm good, that's why I'm getting a commission. You're like, aren't I lucky? Exactly. But I said no, and it wasn't something that I didn't want to do. I just didn't have the bandwidth. I'm going to use that word. Awful. I'm so sorry, sorry. but I've used it. I didn't have the bandwidth to take it on. Chuck up my chocolate milk. (laughs) Awful. And I felt terrible. I felt a real sense of guilt. But really empowered... There's another buzzword I'm just going to chuck in there. God. And it was one of the best things I did, and it was really useful. The stupid thing as well is that we've both been commissioning editors, so we have both asked people to do things and had them say, I don't have time, I can't this week. Could I do it next week? No, thanks, not for me. Have you ever written them down in a small black book to never commission again? Or have you just been like, oh, okay, no worries, I'll ask someone else? Despite the fact that I've never held it against anyone if they've said, I don't have time, I can't. And if anything, it just sends the message that you're busy and therefore potentially good. When it's me, I'm just like, I couldn't possibly. They'll never ask me again. No one will ever ask me again. Yeah. And I'll die. (laughs) 
penniless writer. <laughs> but I think this must be so true of so many, many industries. And I wonder whether it's symptomatic of our generation, possibly. When we graduated, we graduated into a recession. So, job God, of- we thought that was bad at the time. Oh, Christ, I know. Source class of 2020. I know. So there was that atmosphere of there not being much work and having to feel incredibly grateful for having a full-time job and being able to take a full-time salary. And that was just across the board, no matter what industry. And therefore, you would do anything to keep that job and to excel in that job. And perhaps that's why we are maybe not so good at saying no if we feel like work's being piled upon us because you think, oh, there's five other people who would give their right arm to have this and I'm the lucky one that's got it and I need to make sure I keep it. Which I don't think is necessarily a particularly healthy way of working because I think that's where burnout lies. Well, I used to think that we had a really strong work ethic and certainly when I was interning and I would sit on the floor in the cupboard for a 15-hour day, earning my £5 expenses, no chair or anything, ventilation, uh, wouldn't have dreamt of walking away. And when people did, I thought that they... I guess I thought they were lazy or that they just didn't want it enough, that they didn't have a strong work ethic. And now I look back at... 20 year old me and I think what an absolute muggins I was <laughs> because those other people who walked away from being completely mistreated they just had self-respect and they knew their worth and I wish I had so I'm learning at work personal life I don't know if I've ever been a people pleaser I feel like I've long been able to say no to things <laughs> and just I don't want to come to that or but, I don't feel up to it. So what I am fascinated by and why I love Nancy's response is if I don't want to go to something, I will spend two hours coming up with an elaborate excuse as to why I can't make that dinner or that party. What I'm terrible at doing is just saying, no, thank you. <laughs> Not for me. I'm not in the mood. I'm so impressed by people who can just honestly say, do you know what, tonight, I just would like to stay in. And I know that actually, if I was on the receiving end of that comment, if I'd invited somebody and they just politely said no, I'd think, huh, and it might floor me for a bit. But I think we need to get better at accepting that just because you want to do something doesn't mean somebody else necessarily wants to do something. And a polite no is much better than a, a white lie. Is it though? <laughs> is it in every circumstance? Because if you're saving somebody's feelings with a white lie, yes, okay, it's less honest, but isn't it also kinder? If you just don't want to do something because you don't enjoy it, but somebody else does, why do you need to rain on their parade? I wouldn't enjoy that because I think your taste is shit. <laughs> True. But I do think there's a real maturity to just being able to say, oh, I just don't feel like it tonight. Yes, I agree with that. And I do do that. Sometimes. I'm impressed by you then. Well, That's I very am good. Impressive. Thank you so much for noticing. Well, the next time you get a message from me saying, my neighbour's locked himself out. 
the, the cat's gone missing. I'm waiting for a parcel. You know I might be lying. You never send me those messages. I know where you are at all times. <laughs> I'm going to try taking a leaf out of Nancy's book. What was it again? Miss Nancy Mitford is unable to do as you ask. Fabulous. Fanu, what would you recommend to me this week? I would like to recommend you a podcast. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. I love a good podcast. So this is a new podcast. It's just dropped Mm -hmm. on Spotify. And it's the Beauty Stack podcast. So Beauty Stack is run by the incredibly impressive Sharma Dean Reid, who was also founder of War Nails. She actually came to talk to us at university. She did. She she did, did our course. Our course, but a couple of years ahead of us. And she had already founded War Nails and she came to speak to us. And I remember being very intimidated. She was very impressive. So the podcast is brilliant. It, the whole series is on Spotify. And it's a podcast series exploring the significance of beauty and the important role it plays in wider society, which I think is a very interesting... It's always an interesting topic, I think, but specifically now with the pandemic having shut so many beauty salons and the government's <sighs> refusal to even consider them. And I think the, the sense that the government has been very dismissive of the beauty industry and regarding opening salons as being non-essential because it's frivolous and something women do, so therefore fluffy, and ignoring the fact that it's a huge contributor to the UK economy and it's a huge employer. But also the fact that you could get a beard trim but you couldn't get an eyebrow trim. Well, you can go and get... It's just sexist. It, it is. And you can go and get pissed in the pub and then accidentally breathe all over someone when you're drunk but you can't go and get a facial even though the therapist will be wearing full PPE. Anyway, this series interviews founders, entrepreneurs... Activists, guests include Charlie Craggs, Atega Uagba, Alex Eagle, Michelle Kennedy. The episode that I want to highlight is an interview with Scarlett Curtis. So she's an author and she's co-founder of The Pink Protest. They're two are friends. They have a extraordinary mutual respect for each other, which comes across very well in the conversation. Scarlett talks about the role that beauty has played for her especially in her teen years. So when she was 14, she got diagnosed with scoliosis. She went in for a routine operation to treat it, but woke up in chronic pain. And it was a chronic pain she then had to live with for years. She couldn't walk, she couldn't leave the house. She spent a lot of her time in a wheelchair. She says in the interview that she felt like a granny, even though she was in her teens. And she speaks about how beauty became one of her coping mechanisms. Knitting was also a big coping mechanism of hers and writing, but beauty became something that made her feel like a teenage girl, having her hair done, having her nails done. She was going in for an, an operation to remove some metal plates from her back and it was risky. They didn't know if it was gonna work. It could have caused more pain for her. She decided she wanted to have it done before she went, her and her mum went to War Nails, which was Sharma Dean's nail salon in East London, which at the time had a branch in Topshop. And they went there and she got some nail art done. And the way she describes it, she says she was about to have all these men cut open her body and pull things out. And what a terrifying prospect that was. 
but she could go into a feminine safe space and have on her nails a message that she wanted so she had good luck written on her nails like a little bit of softness in such a hard reality that she was living I think it's really important to remember how significant those little moments of beauty can be in terms of your mental health in terms of providing reassurance providing comfort I think it's something that we shouldn't underestimate and I think it's lovely to celebrate it. I think that's what people overlook with beauty so much. I remember when my sister had breast cancer, how much it meant to her to be able to get her eyebrows done. She got uh, microblading, which is like a form of eyebrow tattoo, because obviously going through chemotherapy, you lose your hair and she lost her eyebrow hair. But to be able to keep the semblance of eyebrows made such a big difference to her and how she felt and how she felt facing the world it meant so much to her. It's a brilliant podcast series and I think it's just a really important message to bear in mind in these pandemic times. What's your rec, dear? Mine? Trash telly, shocking. <laughs> I was tempted to bring something high to the table but really what I wanted to talk about was Selling Sunset. Oh, yes. It is a trending on Netflix and... It is really trash TV. So basically, if you haven't watched it, it follows a group of real... T- I can't say it. Realtors. It follows a group of realtors. I can't say that in the American accent. What, what accent was that? <laughs> I don't know, You do it. Realtors? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Like LA. Okay, yeah. Realtors. So anyway, estate agents. They're estate agents. <laughs> They're estate agents. In LA, they are selling multi-million pound houses although what I find so funny is that a million US dollars is like 600,000 pounds which is the price of a one bed flat in London quite anyway that would be a completely different show (laughs) some of them are amazing most are really tacky there's only been like two that I wanted and I'm well into the second series there's only been two houses that I thought oh I'd really like to live in that one because most of them are Flashy. Flashy is a good word. That's the diplomatic word for them. But huge views of all of LA, just off the Sunset Strip, TV that pops up from the floor. Would quite like that, actually. Fantastic. Useful, because TVs are ugly things. All the bells and whistles and 40 million US dollars. So it's following them, and it does tell you the price of each house and the commission they'll get. Although I would love to know how much tax they pay. Mm. And obviously in America you have to pay your health care and all of that stuff. Oh, there is an article. I read that this morning. Yeah, there's an article on how much each cast member is worth. Then. Google that. Um, but what is really interesting about it is how old it feels and how out of touch it feels as a show. The women all dress and look the same way. They are all wearing sky high boutons. They are all perfectly blow dried and in bodycon dresses. In the first series, they're all white. They're all very slim. They are all employed by these two men who are twins. And there's a really bizarre dynamic there. At one point, they all sit down at a dinner table and one of the bosses has ordered cocktails for the table and they're Someone says, what's this? And he says, oh, it's a pregnancy test to see who doesn't drink. He's dated one of them. There's also a conversation with another one. 
of his employees about how maybe if they were at different stages in their life, they might have dated. So bizarre. There's some workplace harassment for you. So series three, he's just starts over here. So what's your favourite word? Dropped. Dropped. (laughs) I consciously didn't use the word dropped. (laughs) So I've only just got stuck in. So I'm a newbie to it, but I've went straight into series three. So I've missed... I only started on Sunday, but I just don't have a husband. So, okay. Uh, I'm so sure. you've binge-watched these series. I've got a bit more time. That's impressive. I've missed... I understand that I've missed a mega wedding. I'm going to have to go back and watch that because if there's nothing I love more, it's an ostentatious wedding. I will admit to having looked ahead slightly at some Instagrams of some weddings that haven't happened yet in my timeline of shows right um i might have peaked i was reading a piece in gratia where they call the women aggressively attractive which i think is pretty apt they are the glossiest of glossies i enjoy very much that no one can move their forehead it's made by the guy that adam Devello, who produced laguna beach and the hills and it definitely has that vibe to it that there's a lot of cat fights it's the same as in the Real Housewives franchise. Everybody's falling out over everything. And I think that's the bit that feels a bit old hat to me and, and the bit that I found less interesting. It feels very predictable to put a lot of women in a show and then have them fall out with each other all the time. And there's loads of bitchiness. Yes. And there's loads of conversations about gold digging, although... At least at one point they're talking about whether or not the younger man that one of them is marrying, whether he's a gold digger. But lots of the women are thought to be gold diggers at at certain points, just to perpetuate that stereotype. But the gloss factor of it, the glamour factor of it, is incredibly appealing. I think especially now, when life feels sapped of all glamour, to see something that is so unrelated to what's going on right now. And they are in this completely different world of such extreme wealth that it's fascinating to see the way that they look. They're dripping in diamonds and designer gear. The houses, as you've mentioned, are just incredible. The setting, that it's LA, it's Hollywood. All of that, I have found appealing very much so i do feel slightly uncomfortable watching it because i am uncomfortable with the pitting women against each other and the sex politics are really problematic but you know i'm a sucker for a house tour i'm so nosy for them to beam up how much money that house is how many beds how many baths and then they walk you around and they've got all sorts of really dodgy bad taste things but some of it's fabulous and loads of things that I've never heard of before I'm really enjoying it for that element because Houses of the Rich and Famous always interesting and actually I think I have found my new career path through Selling Sunset so this episode I watched featured a stager mm, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and I'd never heard of this before but basically, when a house is being developed and it hasn't been lived in yet, it's fresh out of the box and there's no furniture in it, they employ a stager to come in and dress the house with furniture and decorations and, oh my God, 
it looks like the most fun ever. I can only imagine they get given a budget and the aim is to make the house look as desirable and aspirational as possible. And I can think of nothing more fun than to spend my days doing that. The rich people that they are showing these houses to love it. One of them shows a client this house and there's this library wall of shelves and she says to him, are you a reader? And he says, no, so they'd have to include the books because that would be embarrassing otherwise. <laughs> wow. What? Fantastic. What? Like, just staged books and I'll keep those because I want people to think I read when I don't. She also then shows him the kitchen and says, do you cook? And he says, no. So, I mean, I don't even know what he does. Those are all I do, read and cook and watch trash TV. Should we wrap this up before my uh, sweat moustache? <laughs> before we just become puddles on the floor? Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please rate, review and subscribe. You can also find us in written form via our weekly newsletter, which drops every Sunday for free into your inbox. To sign up, go to thewingwoman.co.uk. I heard that. That's your third drops. Was it? Of the episode. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us on Instagram at Frankie Graddon, at Charlie Gowans, and collectively at thewingwoman underscore. We'll see you next week. Maybe we'll have learned fan language by then. Maybe we will. <laughs> Bye!